Holy God, on this most beautiful morning, we ask you to bless us with the word of life. Lend your spirit to restore and support and strengthen us as we seek to become and to be one, as is your son's prayer for us. Amen. Our gospel lesson comes from John's gospel from the 17th chapter. It can be found in the Pew Bible on page 111 of the New Testament section. And we hear Jesus speaking. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. The word of the Lord. What's next resonates. U-Haul and Pinsky and Budget. It seems that my neighborhood has sprouted crew of moving vans, just as my Facebook feed has been filled with smiling faces in caps and gowns and prom dresses and tuxedos. They are all signs of the season. They are signs of things that are coming to an end. Last Sunday, our youth ministry celebrated with our graduating high school seniors at the end of year picnic at Irish Park. It was a final supper, if you would. The families brought the sides and the salads and the youth committee grilled the hamburgers and the hot dogs and the deacons loaded up a table with desserts. But the highlight of the gathering came after the meal. As is her tradition, our youth coordinator, Jane Carden, shared reflections for each one of these graduating seniors. She shared her first memory of them, her favorite memory of them, and the gift of character she saw in them that would serve them well in life. There was laughter, a lot of laughter. And there was joy, and there was celebration, and there was a genuine sense of the connection that these young adults had with each other and with Jane. It 
was a holy moment. And it was made complete when Jane handed each senior an oversized fleece blanket in Third Church gold and gray. These blankets were hand-tied by their friends in the youth group, and they were a physical reminder that whatever comes next, that they will be wrapped in this congregation's love and prayers. And as endings go, it was a terrific one. Filled with a recognition of what has been, and with the promise of new things to come. It served to launch our seniors into that liminal space between an ending and a new beginning. This is a space that come with, comes with its own set of fears and its own set of challenges and even its own breath-catching anticipation. And they were sent into that place, that place of already but not yet, wrapped in your prayers. Today we are in the liminal space of the Easter season between the ascension of Jesus, which we celebrated on Thursday, and Pentecost, which we will celebrate next Sunday. And so our gospel reading takes us back to the liminal space of the Last Supper. In that upper room, the disciples gathered for what would be their final meal together. And we are told that before the meal, Jesus took the role of a servant and putting on towel and gathering basin, washed his disciples' feet. But as that meal concluded, he made it plain to the disciples that one of the twelve would betray him to death. Then as Judas exits into the night, Jesus turns and begins his farewell address. The hour is late, and the disciples are foot-tired and heart-weary and more than a little uncertain at this turn of events. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows things that they cannot even imagine. He knows that Judas will return with the soldiers. He knows that he will stand trial and be found guilty in the hours before dawn. He knows that he will be dead and buried in less than a day. So Jesus speaks to them about their future, commanding them to love one another, and he promises them the Holy Spirit as their companion and their guide. And he calls them to abide in him and to bear witness to a world that would persecute them because it could not or would not understand them. And he ends that speech with these words, I've said this to you so that you may have peace, in the world, you face persecution, but take courage. I've conquered the world. And then into the liminal space that is created, Jesus begins to pray. Let me say that this prayer with its eloquent diction and ancient oratorical style is not the product of the Last Supper's stenographer. This prayer and the farewell speech that we have heard from this gospel writer are done in the tradition of a first century biography where last words and last prayers carried what the community believed to be an essential message for future generations. So we're not overhearing some private speech, nor are we eavesdropping on a private prayer, but we come to these words among the latest 
this generation which bears the name of Christ. Put simply, these words are for us. Jesus begins by asking God to glorify him and to lift him up so that he in turn might praise God. And he asserts that he has accomplished the mission that God sent him to earth for. He has given eternal life by revealing God to his followers so that they can know, really know who God is, even as they have come to know Jesus as God's son. And he asked God to restore him to glory, to the glory that he shared in the presence of God before the beginning of the world. And then he covers his disciples in prayer, much like those prayer blankets will cover our youth. Charles Cusar makes an interesting note that we might be surprised because the disciples in their tiredness are now depicted not as helpless and frightened followers, but as God's possessions given to Jesus, people who have been taught the word and have understood that Jesus comes from God. They are people who are in the know. And his foremost prayer for them is that God would protect them and by extension protect us so that all of Jesus' followers might be one. One. Like Jesus and God are one. Susan Guthrie describes the seventh Sunday of Easter as that imposed pause. The anticipation of promise, the flash of insight before the work of Pentecost begins. It is the church, not quite ready to be church, being asked to go deeper into love. Here, she writes, we learn the skill of loving God and uniting in community at times of ambiguity and uncertainty and waiting. And the prayer that Jesus wraps around his followers in this moment is that they be one. The prayer is for protection from a world that does not understand them, which may even kill them for their belief. And we understand that that is a risk that is still with us. We may only look to the news from Friday, where in Egypt a wave of violence has targeted the Christian minority, and where 29 Coptic Christians were murdered as they traveled by bus outside of Cairo. It was an assault on Christian faith as much as an assault on Christian bodies, because it pushes us when we are so assaulted to rest firmly in our active belief. So the protection for which Jesus prays is that in the face of peril and persecution, his followers will continue to be one, that they will continue to share the same communion that graces his relationship to God Almighty. So that when bombs and bullets and beheadings push us to the frontiers of faithfulness, we would go there wrapped in the prayer that God hold us secure in our connection to one another. 
Bill Loader points to these words and says, John is telling us that Jesus is worried about something. This unity or division. He says, unity is not a strategy of convenience and economy. It's not some clever ecumenical declaration which papers over difference. It is an extension of God's, of John's understanding of what eternal life or salvation means. Our relationship to Jesus Christ is meant to connect us with other followers in mutual love. And that is how we bear up under persecution and even how we bear up under cultural indifference. This mutual love is how we demonstrate our knowledge of God and Jesus Christ to the world. Yet we, the followers of Christ, are fragmented into more than 44,000 denominations and organizations. Our theologies differ, our scriptural understandings differ. So we might ask, how in our brokenness do we present and represent Christ in the world? How are we to be one? In a case of what I think is historic understatement, Nancy Ramsey says, we may find ourselves sorely tested by radically different interpretations of the wideness of God's love and the boundaries of the church and the full inclusion of all God's people. Oneness, she says, will necessarily require that we seek ways to honor the particular gifts and experiences and insights of each community of believers and that we support one another through accountability to the gospel that we hold in common. We are one in honor and accountability. Before he went on his trip to Israel, Ernest Krug noted for us that this Sunday in the Presbyterian Church calendar, it is Disability Inclusions Sunday. Or as he would so eloquently rephrase it, All Abilities Inclusion Sunday. And it struck me as I read this prayer for unity that the work of unity is not without, is not only a work of Christ, but also ours. It is hope and invitation, and it's the calling that comes to each of us who seek to follow Jesus Christ. And in this space, where we are blessed to share the fullness of community and the love of Jesus, that is wonderful. But it is not the universal experience of the church. Because we know, we know that there are those who can only press their noses against the glass as observers, but not as welcome participants. And so I wondered, what does it mean to follow Christ to seek oneness when you are excluded from the community of discipleship. And that we have a Disabilities Inclusion Sunday is a sign to us that there is still work to be done. And not just among our brothers and sisters with whom we disagree. So Jesus prays over us this day. And in that prayer, my challenge and our challenge is one of expansive welcome and authentic inclusion. Jesus prays over this 
us this day, and my challenge and our challenge is to make space inside our hearts and inside our institutions and inside our community for all those who want to know Jesus, for all those who seek to be one. Ralph Milton writes a lectionary blog that has a sense of humor. And for this particular gospel text, he recorded a mildly dyslexic benediction. It was printed in a bulletin that read, May our eyes be open, our minds unlocked, and our hearts untied. Perhaps a typo can be divinely inspired. As we seek to be united, as we seek the unity for which Jesus prayed, may our hearts indeed become untied. Amen.